your professional career is declining and coming much sooner than you think. This was the title of an article written in The Atlantic recently that captured an array of statistics and really an overall analysis of people's overall sense of happiness and self-worth in relation to their career. But more specifically, the article highlighted how age or the process of aging actually affects our experience and catches up with each one of us more quickly than we realize. Uh, The author, Arthur Brooks, begins the article with a personal experience on a plane uh, when he was traveling from basically Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., and he recounts a story that basically changes his identity, and it would eventually change how he would spend, he says, the rest of his life on this earth. So the story goes like this. It's not true that no one needs you anymore. These words came from an elderly woman sitting behind me on a late-night flight from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. The plane was dark and quiet. A man I assumed to be her husband murmured almost inaudibly in response, something to the effect of, I wish I was dead. Again, the woman, oh, stop saying that. I didn't mean to eavesdrop, it couldn't help it. I listened with morbid fascination, forming an image of the man in my head as they talked. I imagined someone who had worked hard all his life in relative obscurity, someone with unfulfilled dreams, perhaps of the degree he never attained, the career he never pursued, the company he never started. At the end of the flight, as the lights switched on, I finally got a look at the desolate man. I was shocked. I recognized him. He was and still is world famous. Then in his mid-80s, he was beloved as a hero for his courage, patriotism, and accomplishments many decades ago. As he walked up the aisle of the plane behind me, other passengers greeted him with veneration. Standing at the door of the cockpit, the pilot stopped him and said, Sir, I have admired you since I was a little boy. The older man, apparently wishing for death just a few minutes earlier, beamed with pride at the recognition of his past glories. For selfish reasons, I couldn't get the cognitive dissonance of that scene out of my mind. But I had started to wonder, can I really keep this going? I work like a maniac. But even if I stayed at it 12 hours a day, seven days a week, at some point my career would slow and stop. And when it did, what then? Would I one day be looking back wistfully and wishing I were dead? Was there anything I could do, starting now, to give myself a shot at avoiding misery and maybe even achieve happiness when the music inevitably stops? You know, this all-too-common story is just a good reminder for us, isn't it? A reminder that all earthly success all financial security, all fame and fortune, like the milk carton in your fridge, they have an expiration date. So newsflash for the type A go-getters of Washington, D.C. You are not invincible. You are not unbreakable. And you are certainly not indispensable. 
Sooner or later, someone will come along and be better than you in your job. More skilled, more energy, younger, better looking, brighter. And even if you have a long life and you accomplish everything you've ever wanted, you and I still age. So for us young folks in here, one day we won't be young. So make friends now with people who are two and three times your age. It's a mark of wisdom, I think. And then, in a time determined and known only by God, we all die. As one commentator has put it, the grave exposes the frailty, the insubstantiality of our humanity. So what happens when any old person, any old guy or gal, or a powerful and wealthy king, or a very well-known and unstoppable nation loses sight of that reality and thinks of themselves as unstoppable, irreplaceable, or even immortal and godlike. Well, this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 21. You can find that on page 582 in the pew Bibles or chair Bibles provided, 582. If this is your first time with us, we're currently in a somewhat sporadic sermon series in the book of Isaiah through the last couple of years. Uh, the last few weeks, though, Pastor Isaac has led us in Isaiah's chapter 19 and 20. So if you, if you missed those, you can listen to those online. This morning, I'll be leading us through Isaiah chapter 21. Please follow with me as I read. This is God's word. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam. Lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has caused, I will bring to an end. Therefore, my loins are filled anguish. Pangs have seized me, like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs, and he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered 
to the ground. Oh, my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. The oracle concerning Duma. One is calling to me from Sire, Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravans of the Dedanites. To the thirsty bring water. Meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, Within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. And all the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Well, as we look at Isaiah 21 together this morning, uh, my hope is that you and I walk away together with a greater clarity of the futility of human pride, but also the hope we have in trusting God alone. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you the two main points up front. Point number one, when God speaks, listen carefully to all he has said. When God speaks, listen carefully to all he has said. Point number two, when God judges, All false hopes will be exposed. When God judges, all false hopes will be exposed. Now, as we go throughout the sermon, a little different than normal, these are going to serve as kind of brackets and boundaries for you as we walk through this passage, because it is a difficult passage, as you can probably see. And so what it's going to do is highlight these main themes that recapitulate, they repeat themselves all throughout Isaiah 21. But then at the end, we're going to nail down deeper on application so we kind of answer the question, the the so what factor of Isaiah 21. So be patient and carefully listen. This morning, we do find ourselves in a chapter that's located within a series of oracles or pronounced judgments that God would deliver through the prophet Isaiah to the surrounding nations of Israel. You see that really in Isaiah chapters 13 to 24. But to catch us up to speed, in case you haven't been with us, here's where we've been. In Isaiah chapters 1 to 5, we get a dark commentary of the worldliness and wickedness that had crept into the lives of God's people, God's covenant people, God's specially chosen people that he loved. God would then issue warnings for them to repent. That means to turn back to him with promises of restoration and forgiveness under one condition, if and only if they listened to him. However much of Israel would continue breaking the covenant and they would face their judgment, God would send his covenant people into exile, into foreign lands far away, 
And so what happens? Well, in 722 B.C., the nation of Assyria comes and sieges Israel and takes them away. And then in 586 B.C., the, the southern tribe of Judah would be seized and taken away by Babylon. So Isaiah is given the charge to proclaim these words of warning and judgment against Israel, but he's also given the charge to give these words of judgment, these oracles, to and about the nations that surrounded Israel. And one of those kingdoms were Babylon, who we first read about in Isaiah chapters 13 and 14. Pastor Matt, I believe, was in that last year. And now Babylon must come face to face with the sober reality of both their own frail mortality and the futility of their pride. This once strong and mighty people would have to face the music, if you will, that God, the creator of the universe, the sovereign Lord, who exercises perfect justice, power, and sovereignty would bring down this mighty nation forever. But to help us understand this chapter, I want you to continue to be patient as I walk us through and look at the dinner table. We're going to have to set the dishes. We're going to have to set the pots and the pans and the spoons first before we can feast on the food because it gets a little clunky as you read through Isaiah 21. So kind of follow with me. Here we are. In verses 1, 11, and 13, Isaiah is given three oracles from God, three pronounced judgments. The first oracle is in verses 1 to 10. The second oracle is verses 11 and 12. And the third oracle is verses 13 to 17. So that first oracle starts really there in verse 1. You can drop down with me. We read the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. And it's a mysterious title, regardless if you know Hebrew at first or not. But when you read the prophet Jeremiah, specifically chapters 50 and 51, Jeremiah is also prophesying against Babylon. And he uses these same images of a drought, like a desert or a wilderness, and a sea full of water and flooding. And these are images to capture that desolation is coming. No inhabitants left. No resources to run to is coming. Now, who is he writing to? Well, we know in verse 9 explicitly in this first oracle, it's to Babylon. Uh, Babylon was a superpower that was located southeast of another superpower, the Assyrian Empire. And Babylon was a violent and cruel people. Uh, they, they gained power and might uh, and wealth by overcoming other smaller nations generally. And their kings, which we read about at least one of them, Nebuchadnezzar, in the book of Daniel, uh, they were notoriously known for their outspoken arrogance. They would toot their horns, if you've heard that expression. Their luxurious lifestyle and their pompous military success, they, they wore on their shoulders everywhere they went. The second oracle is in verses 11 to 12, starting in verse 11, is to a location called Duma, the oracle concerning Duma. Duma was located in Arabia near Edom. We know this is where the descendants of Esau lived. And we know that it's Edom because in the next line it reads Sair, which is synonymous in the scriptures with Edom, located south of the Dead Sea. And then the third oracle is the oracle concerning Arabia, starting in verse 13. Isaiah, within this oracle, mentions tribes that would be located in the center and northwest half of Arabia. He mentions these tribes as the Dedanites, 
They were merchants, Arabian merchants. Then there were the inhabitants of Tima, basically residents in the area. And then the mighty sons, the mighty warriors, the SEAL Team 6 of Kedar in verse 17. But what did this oracle that God gives Isaiah, what is it all about? What's going on? Let's read. He says, as whirlwinds in the Negev, verse 1, sweep on. It comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam. Lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has caused I bring to an end. Isaiah describes this oracle coming from God as a stern or harsh vision. He likens it so much to, in verse 1, like a violent storm sweeping through a city, destroying everything in its path, picking up speed as it gets closer. He also mentions a leader of some sort from Babylon calling to neighboring nations to fight with him and for him. Look in verse 2. He says, The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media. He mentions here two places, Elam and Media. Uh, Throughout history, there was constant tension between Babylon and Assyria. Assyria had defeated Babylon multiple times, but like every kingdom on earth, they would rise and in time they would fall. So what is most likely going on here in Isaiah 21 is that a warlord named Merodach Baladan, probably wouldn't name your child that, But Merodach Baladan, who ruled in Babylon around the time when King Hezekiah reigned in Israel, sought to to maintain uh, independence from the Assyrian Empire. We meet Merodach Baladan later in Isaiah 39 when he sends his war cabinet, his military uh, envoy, his, his entourage, his homeboys, to try to persuade King Hezekiah and the people of Judah to take sides with him against Assyria. Now, if you recall from sermons over the last two weeks with Pastor Isaac, we've already seen in living color how Israel was already tempted to trust in another nation. They were tempted to trust in Egypt for protection and security. And here, it appears to be a repeat of the same temptation knocking on Israel's door. Because that's how temptation works. You know that, right? You can resist temptation on Monday. That same temptation may come back on Thursday with greater intensity. That's how temptation works. It comes at an opportune time when you are most vulnerable. And so that's probably what's going on here with Israel. Would God's people trust at this weak moment in another pagan king and foreign nation for security and hope, or would they trust in God? Well, this vision was not a light or small thing to see. He did not pull out the Sunday newspaper and enjoy what God gave him. In fact, when Isaiah peeked into the evil depravity of the militaries that made up these kingdoms, all he saw was ego and arrogance and pride, 
And it left Isaiah unnerved. It shocked him. He was deeply affected. It's like being stuck in a nightmare you can't get out. Look in verses 3 to 5. Isaiah says, Therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me, like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes. Oil the shield. Isaiah here describes for us the emotional and physical pain. The emotional and physical toll it took on him as he internalized and pondered upon this terrible scene. And what was so terrible about it? What exactly did Isaiah see on that day? Well, I think it was twofold why it was so bad. First, Think about it for a minute. For human eyes to see unrestrained evil with no pause, no break, lying, betrayal, backbiting, cold-blooded murder before your eyes, That'll undo a person. There's no Instagram filter in Isaiah 21. There's nothing to make it prettier that he saw. It affected him. I've talked to men and women who have seen war. They've seen things, they've heard things that I only read about in the news, and even that is PG. And when a person sees things that are inhumane, that ought not to be done to another human being, it will affect you. It will undo you. For many, it will change you the rest of your life. Isaiah was shaken up. And you got to think, Isaiah loved Israel. Think about them. They had grown weary. Many of them had apostatized and only a remnant was left. And Isaiah's looking at that faithful remnant saying, hold on. This beleaguered and broken people that had been torn down by the Assyrian Empire now were being tempted to trust in Babylon for security. And Isaiah knew to trust in Babylon was a lost cause. It was an immediate death sentence. Look in verse 10. That's why he addresses God's people. Oh, my threshed and winnowed one. What I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. But then the Lord continues his oracle to Isaiah, now gives him specific instructions and in how to communicate this vision further. Look at verses six to nine. We read, for thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw 
cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Isaiah was to set in place a watchman, one who would be vigilant to a spot the approach of the enemy and warn the people of the coming invasion. And Isaiah was to instruct the watchman to do two things. Announce what you see and only what you see. That's verse 6. And secondly, listen diligently. Very diligently. Verse 7. In other words, pay attention. Teachers, this fall, you're going to be telling your students, pay attention. Head off the desk, eyes up. Ever being at a track meet where you see four really fast runners lined up, sweat dripping down their body. They're shaking. They're so ready to run the race. But no one is saying a word. They're listening for the gun. You flinch. You move too soon. You're disqualified. There's a waiting. There's an anticipation. You can barely even hear the heartbeat. You're so eager to hear. Isn't this the same kind of preaching that we should want here at Capitol Hill Baptist Church? The clear, unhindered, undistorted proclamation of thus says the Lord. No less, no more. And when you show up at church on Sunday, I love the eagerness that this congregation exemplifies. It's like those track players waiting. What is God going to say today? Regardless of what preachers up here. No games, no gimmicks. As one country preacher once said, don't give those people a joke and a Coke. Give them the Bible, young man. Give them the Bible. Just the bold, open statement of the truth. God's pure, unadulterated word. Whether it's hearing about the good shepherd in Psalm 23, or Jesus in Matthew 12 coming up next week, or the weightiness and the darkness of judgment of Isaiah 21, we should pray that God would give each of us the deacons, the deaconesses, the ushers, the sound crew, the pastors, everybody in here, a burning desire to hear God's voice echoing and reverberating throughout our life. And pray for your pastors. Pray. We have been in charge by God to watch over your soul. So pray that we would have this watchman-like mentality, even if it stay, keeps us up whole nights like Isaiah. And that is precisely what the watchman did, right? Look at verses 8 and 9. He announced boldly and clearly, plainly and truthfully, what the Lord had permitted him to see. And what did he see? Well, he saw the second half of what Isaiah saw. He saw the utter defeat of Babylon. We read in verse 9, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. 
You see, Babylon was defeated by the Assyrian Empire in 689 BC, and then about 150 years later, when Babylon got strong again and mighty again and arrogant again, they soon would be defeated, and they would be this time defeated forever. Ironically, did you notice in verse 2 this, this one people group called Media? They're the Medes we read about. You can read about even in Daniel chapter 5. They had teamed up with Persia. And guess what happened? Media betrayed Babylon like the world will do to you and teamed up with another nation that would take out Babylon. The remainder of Isaiah 21 just describes judgment now coming to other areas of the Arabian desert. In verse 11, we see a snapshot of the fear that arose with the uncertainty of the judgment that would come. Look again in verse 11. One is calling to me from Sire, watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Come back again. In other words, the watchman says that night might end soon. You keep asking me, but it's only going to last a little while. Morning will come and darkness will come again. In other words, he's saying, you don't know the time God's judgment's coming. Keep asking. Keep seeking. You see, the Assyrian and Babylonian empires waged war on these various tribes throughout their history, and it left the people with anxiousness and fear. Like people fighting for survival. And yet, brothers and sisters, even the greatest military strength would not be able to withstand God's judgment. Whether it was bread and water they tried to use to meet each other's needs in verses 13 to 15, or the, or the most reliable military strength that a nation could have, it would not stand. Verses 16 and 17, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. And the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. But brothers and sisters, this is not just a diagram or some kind of cool Bible study you can boast about to your friends on Monday at the water cooler. Babylon and the nations described in chapters 13 to 24 were real, historical, geographical places in human history. But God's judgment on these nations are not the end of the story. They are only a preview, a snapshot of a greater judgment coming on the whole world. Turn back quickly to Isaiah chapter 13, really quickly. Isaiah chapter 13. This is where these oracles began. I want you to drop down to verse 9. You'll notice most of your headings will say the judgment of Babylon. And you'll see that starting in verse 17, crystal clear. But I want you to start in verse 9. The Lord has something else to say that would really set up these oracles in these chapters. This is what God's word says about the day of the Lord. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation 
and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. The Apostle Paul would refer to the same day, the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he writes to the church in Thessalonica. He writes in chapter 5 verses 2 and 3, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There's that uncertainty. Remember that? While people are saying, there is peace and security, military strength, physical resources, health, wealth. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. You see, the judgment of God that is coming upon the whole world comes at a time when we least expect. But it's coming at a time that is already set in God's history book. Let me say that again. The judgment of God on the entire world comes at a time when you will least expect, but at a time that is already set in God's history book. You see, brothers and sisters, ancient Babylon, who we've read about in chapter 21, was also a preview, a mini illustration that symbolizes a spiritual Babylon that the church faces until Christ returns. We read earlier, Kayla did, in chapter 18 of the book of Revelation, where Babylon is depicted as a false religious entity who proudly boasts of their financial and worldly security gained from the ungodly nations around them. In a wider sense, then, Babylon represents an anti-Jesus world system that undermines and even opposes the message of Christianity. You could even say Babylon symbolizes humankind's ultimate attempt to organize the world without reference to God. We see that in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, don't we not? They, the people gathered together to, to build this magnificent piece of art and power. And yet we know from Genesis 11 that it was an effort to make a name for themselves, irrespective of the God who made them. You see, the writers of the New Testament give different descriptions about this fallen world system and its beliefs its ideologies, its worldviews, and its moral and materialistic priorities in contradiction to God's will. Here's just a sample I'll just toss to you. Galatians 1.4, this world is described as the present evil age. John says in 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Or recall Jesus' encounter with Satan's temptations in the wilderness. In Matthew 4, starting in verses 8 and 9, we read again, the devil took him to a very high mountain 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. You see, behind the spiritual idolatry of Babylon, behind the lusts and allures of this present evil age is Satan himself. Schemes, tricks, strongholds, fiery darts. He's called the father of lies, the evil one, the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of Christians. He is our adversary, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Do you know why the message of Christianity, the gospel, is not welcomed with open arms by everyone? It's because the world and Satan and his minions and those who have been deceived by him hate our God and hate our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Sinclair Ferguson, he says it really well. There is built into every sinner a suspicion of God. Are you suspicious of your God? Do you not trust him? Do you view God as unsafe? Well, if that's you, I want to flip the question. Have you ever been wrong before? I'm not talking about the math test you took in fourth grade. I'm talking about you've made a wrong moral judgment. Has anyone else ever done wrong to you? Okay, so I think if we were all honest, we've all let each other down and we've all let ourselves down. So before we are tempted to be suspicious of God, let's just acknowledge that the batteries don't work right all the time in us. Things aren't always functioning as they should in our minds, in our hearts. We don't see the world in reality with 2020 vision, beloved. Sin has distorted that. Our sin and the sins of others. So before you distrust God, I would like to implore you to doubt your doubts. Distrust the thoughts you have about God that are not true. God has existed far beyond and before us, and his character, unlike us, never changes. I, the Lord, will not change. He is good yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and for all eternity. So how do we go then from being suspicious of God, distrusting him, thinking he is unsafe, to confidence in God, to seeing that the righteous can run to that tower and find safety. Well, this is the good news of Christianity. The message of the gospel is that God comes to us to unravel our suspicion of him. In fact, we should be more afraid of him than we really are, and yet he is more compassionate than you could ever comprehend. 
That's the mystery of this thing. That he approaches us, that God steps into time and history by sending us his son, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And God then exposes our sin because when we look at the perfect son of God, the perfect image of who God is like, we find ourselves falling way, way short because that son never distrusted his father. Do you know why Jesus did not distrust his father? It was because he knew his father's goodness. You see, God comes to us to expose our idols of false worship, pride, and self-sufficiency. And he does it first by this, summoning you and me to the courtroom and answering this question, what do you deserve, man? What do you deserve, woman? What do you deserve, young person? You know God's doing something when you say, I deserve your wrath. I deserve worse than what Babylon got. Worse than what Tima got. Worse than what the Dedanites got. Worse than what Assyria got. Because you see yourself as undone. And yet, when you look at what God has revealed to us in his son, Jesus Christ, we see the one hand that says judgment is coming and we see the other hand saying judgment has already fallen on my son. Come to me. That wrath has been satisfied. It's been appeased. And three days later, I raised my son from that dead, that cross. He got up. He threw those grave clothes off and that resurrected body appeared before eyewitnesses showing I have conquered the grave. The victor's trumpet has been sounded. A new kingdom has coming and this kingdom will not end. Join me. Go from being an enemy to a child. Trust me. And you will find there is more safety with your God than all the dangers and so-called safety the world will throw at us. Brothers and sisters, that is the good news. That even when we doubt and when we feel a little unsafe about what God will do with us, His mercies are due every morning. His steadfast love never ceases. And He says, trust me, trust me, trust me. Oh, now I'm preaching. Here we go. (laughs) I'm not even sure if there's a direct application, but I feel like you just need to hear this. Some of us are holding on to things in our life right now, going, God, you won't give me this. God, you won't give me this. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. I can't even sing you you ordain all things right because it hurts. Maybe the thing he's withholding from you, maybe even a good thing, is his invitation for you to know him more then you see that all the good things of this life, whatever the gift is, you can ask, you can ask. But if he says, no, my son, no, my daughter, you can have more of me. It's a better exchange. It's a better exchange. Trust him. He is safe. So now we're dropping back towards the end. You thought the application happened. Now we got to drill the hammer in. So, Back to the points. Point number one, when God speaks, listen carefully to all that he has said. Number two, when God judges, all false hopes will be exposed. I hope you've seen this in this chapter. First, when God speaks, listen carefully to all that he has said. For the last 43 minutes, this is exactly what we've been doing. You've been patiently going, brother, I wrote down the notes 40 minutes ago. (laughs) Pastor Bobby, Pastor Mark, give us a whole lot more than you have. Well, 
I hope what Isaiah heard that day has been a good exercise for you to listen. I want you to notice some things about listening to God's word and how to respond to God's word. Subpoint number one, when you listen to God's word carefully, it deeply affects you. When you listen to God's word carefully, you, it deeply affects you. Look at verses three and four. Isaiah says, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me, like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has turned for me into trembling. You know, God may not be giving you and I a vision of military fighting against one another, but God has already given us a picture of what happens to the wicked on the day of judgment. You see, the Bible says that at the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20, the books will be opened. Do you know what the books are? Your life. Everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought. And the wicked, the ungodly, the ones who die without Jesus will have to hear the indictment from their holy God. And then they will be thrown into hell. You see, the Bible describes hell not as something to laugh about. The Bible describes hell as outer darkness, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal separation from the blessings and love of God, a prison, and a place of torment where the worm does not die. Hell then is an eternity before the righteous ever-burning wrath of God, suffering torment from which there is no escape and no relief. When is the last time you read carefully and pondered slowly the eternal punishment of hell? When's the last time you did a Bible study on that? Went to a conference on that? You see, beloved, Jesus wept over the unbelief of Jerusalem. Paul was in anguish and wept over the unbelief of the Jews. Do you know why? Because Jesus and Paul loved God and Jesus and Paul loved people. To be deeply moved by the scriptures, we must muse. It's a word we don't use too much. We need to muse upon all that God has said. Stay a little while. Linger in the text. Steep yourself in the sweet truths of the Bible, but also the hard and heavy ones. One of our pastors, Luke Holland, will be giving a talk on the reality and eternality of hell this fall. I believe it's in September. I would encourage you to come back so that you might apply this to your life. It's also important to notice in Isaiah 21 of how Isaiah and the watchman carefully listened and relayed God's word to others. Look at subpoint two. Subpoint two, they faithfully obeyed and proclaimed it. They faithfully obeyed and proclaimed it. Look at verse six. For thus the Lord said to me, go, 
set a watchman. And what did Isaiah do? He obeyed. As Pastor Isaac was teaching us in James chapter 1, the blessed person is not the one who hears the word of God and walks away, but is the one who hears the word of God and obeys it. Verse 7, when he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who cried out, upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. I have found in my Christian life and a pastor of a local church that careful listeners of Scripture are generally more obedient followers of Jesus Christ. Those who pause, take in, consider, are usually the ones who are more obedient to the Lord. If you're looking for someone to disciple you, look around for those type of believers in your life. Those who stay long in the text, long at scripture. Doesn't mean about the breadth of it, but to go deep and to ponder. Find those believers in your life and imitate that. And then look again at verse 10. Again, Isaiah said, Oh, my threshed and winnowing, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. If you're someone who's gifted to preach or to teach, the Bible says in 1 Peter 4.11, those of us who are given speaking gifts to speak as one who speaks the oracles of God, speaks of our integrity, as Pastor Mark mentioned. We just say what God has said. The greatest preacher is not who has the best voice. The greatest preacher is who gets out of the way and preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a good preacher. In the spiritual battle we face as a church and as individual Christians, we need more than college degrees. We need more than self-help books to fight against the attacks of the devil. We need the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we need boldness. You can't wield that sword thinking, I don't know if it's going to work. No, confidence that what God has said, he has the power to bring to pass. And brothers and sisters, we need a big God theology. I think the average church service in America makes God look small, impotent, and kind of in a corner, and we let him out for an hour. That's ridiculous. Look at the book of Isaiah. Boom, high definition. Boom, how small these idols are how small mankind is and how big and glorious our God is. I love how William Gurnall says it. He says, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. One fear cures another. When man's terror scares you, turn your thoughts to the wrath of God. We don't tell people about Jesus just so they can escape hell. However, you must tell people about Jesus because if they don't cling to him, they will go to hell. When my daughter asked me about hell in the back seat yesterday, listening to a Shy Lin sermon jam thing. <laughs> but we're going down Pennsylvania. I'm like, okay, there we go. <laughs> I gave her what I had, and I think we had lunch. So, <laughs> so, basic point, when God speaks, listen carefully to all that he has said. Big God theology Saturate your mind in how big and glory this God is and our fears just get smaller. 
Number two, and this is where we will end this latter part of the sermon here. When God judges, all false hopes will be exposed. When God judges, all false hopes will be exposed. Again, if you step back from this chapter and you step back and look at the whole book of Isaiah, it's a big one, 66 chapters. What you're going to see basically is this, a no contest face-off between the Lord of hosts and earthly kings and their gods. Look back in Isaiah 21 verse 9 where we get to see an example of what happens when you go face to face with the God of Holy Scripture. Isaiah 21 9, and behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. You see, Babylon's gods of Bel and Nebo proved to be as reliable as yesterday's trash. The power, the life, and the sense of purpose and destiny that these false gods projected were just illusions. It wasn't even the real thing. When Babylon was put to the test of God's judgment, the Lord, did you read the text in verse 9? Shattered these idols to the ground. You see, idols, they can come in forms of statutes, animals, astrology, or even ancient relics. But idols never begin in human hands. Idols begin in human hearts. You know that, right? Idols can take on all sorts of shapes and sizes as Babylon and all she represents indicates to us. An inflated view of military power to keep you safe. Loving money and wealth over loving God. Sensual hedonism where pleasure for the sake of pleasure rules the day. Dead religion that has rules but doesn't have the one true gospel. Secular humanism, which most of our universities love to propagate to people where man is at the center of the world and God doesn't even exist. He's irrelevant. But at the root of it all, whoever you're talking to or if I'm talking to you, the same problem is true for everyone on this planet. The root of our problem is the sin of human pride. It's the, what I like to call the I don't need God disease. We all got it. I've got some of that I don't need God disease. It sounds like this. I don't need God to forgive me of my sins. I've never sinned. I don't need God to tell me how to use my money. Did you catch that? I don't need God's word for making decisions about dating or marriage or how I should think about retirement. I don't need God to join a local church and be discipled by others. I don't need God to help me with my depression and anxiety. I don't need friends or accountability in my life. I got it. I'm not going to fall. I don't need anyone to pray for me. That's for weak folks. Have you ever heard this? Or maybe thought it? I don't really need to repent of this secret sin. It's not going to really hurt anyone. Just, just one more time. No one will know. You see, brothers and sisters, Proverbs tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You don't have to be another statistic 
to someone falling on their face because they were deceived by their pride. On the contrary, listen to 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. That's because he cares for you. If you want to test your heart this morning and maybe this week with how self-sufficient you might be, here's a good question. What did you find yourself praying about this past week? And what are things that you didn't pray about? Think about those things. What did you pray about and what did you not pray about? You see, prayer, here's just Christianity 101. Prayer is our dependence on God. It's where we put our dependence on him on full display. But see, prayer is also the platform. It's the showroom that gets to show off God's faithfulness in our weakness, God's generosity with our needs, God's power, God's love when we feel like everyone around us has betrayed us. And so pray, beloved, about everything. I don't care if you pray about the parking spot at Target. I love childlike faith like that. Pray about everything. And pray as our Lord taught us that his kingdom would come and his will be done in and throughout our life and around the world. So as we conclude, we should ask ourselves, how did Isaiah have the courage though and the perseverance to keep looking to God when things around him seem so dark? I mean, think about it. It seems like in Isaiah's day, in some ways, isn't that much different in our day. It seems at times that the world has the upper hand on God's people. That the pool and the tides and the allure of this world is, is, is causing churches to shrink. People are disinterested in the Bible. But brothers and sisters, I want you to recall, do you remember how Isaiah was first called to the prophetic ministry? Remember Isaiah chapter 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Beloved, it was the sight and sounds of heaven's throne room that gave Isaiah boldness and perseverance in his earthly pilgrimage. The bigger God became in his sight, the smaller he became in his own sight, as well as everyone else around him and the nations and gods that opposed them. But Isaiah saw the Lord of hosts in that heavenly vision. Did you catch that? The same Lord of hosts spoken of in Isaiah 21. Who is this Lord of hosts Isaiah speaks of? 
when John's gospel, John chapter 12, John tells us who Isaiah saw on that day. Verse 41, he saw his Jesus glory. You see, while earthly kings die and their dynasties rise and eventually fall, Jesus reigns as king forever. His professional career will never decline. His kingdom has no end. He is seated right now at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies are subjected under his feet. Ancient kingdoms like Babylon, Edom, Philistia, Moab, and Assyria, or countries today like China, North Korea, Iraq, Turkey, Africa, and the United States of America are like a drop in a bucket before the grandest glory of our God. They just don't compare. You know, I imagine after the sermon today, some of you may ask, hey, Blake, what do you do this week? Well, aside from my daughter's birthday Tuesday night, every night this week, I'm going to do the same thing, unless the Lord changes my plans. I'm going to be sitting on the couch watching TV on the Discovery Channel. There's only two things that will put me on that couch and be glued to a TV two weeks out of a year. Bowl season, college football, January and Shark Week on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> Fascinated. Every night this week, it's gonna be glorious. These hundreds and even some of them, thousands of pounds of shark jumping out the water, it is a spectacle. I love it. Imagine for a moment as I'm eating popcorn and I'm, I'm hanging out and the buddies wanna hang out. I'm like, no, 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 unless you like sharks, it ain't gonna work. <laughs> a commercial popped on the television and said, Behold, look at my paper mache tiger shark. I'm going to scratch my head and go, get off my television. I'm going to stop that and go to the kitchen and come back and see if it's over. Paper mache tiger shark? Look at it. It jumps. I've seen shark weak enough to know that ain't no real tiger shark. Brothers and sisters, the idols and false gods of this world are nothing but paper mache tiger sharks. They don't have real glory. They don't glit and glamour. They're not the real thing. When you get your eyes and your heart fixed on the God of Scripture, the temporal things of this world don't really seem all that enticing anymore. If you're a Christian today, you already know that because you counted the cost, you turn your back on that, and you're following Jesus. And so, unlike the false gods of Babylon who are shattered to the ground in the so-called mighty men's of Kedar that die, our God is the king of ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. To him be glory and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know that when you speak, we are called to listen carefully to all that you have said and that when you judge, all false hopes will be exposed. Lord, we pray that our vision of you as revealed in Scripture and most supremely through your Son, Jesus Christ, will expand, increase, 
and become more satisfying in our hearts than any temptation thrown at us. Lord, we do pray that you might receive glory today as we worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.